loyal followers, and welcome to episode 77 of Law School in Brief. Um, I am your host, Megan, and with me as always is... Hi, I'm Lydia. <laughs> um, and together we make Law School in Brief. Um, I also realized that when I hit record, there is like a weird delay. So if you're listening to this and we just were randomly talking and in the middle of a sentence when you hit play, I apologize. Or maybe <laughs> I hit record at the exact right time. And Oh, yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah. And we just seem like a super, like the super well-oiled machine that we are. High production value, big budget. I always quality. wait for too long. I like press record and then sit in silence and that like when it's my turn to start the episodes. So I feel like my episodes always have a couple seconds of silence. Mine right too. I'm just, I'm never quite <laughs> sure, but anyway, you didn't tune in to hear us talk about silence or lack thereof. You tuned in mm-hmm. presumably because you would like to know what we've been up to for the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, we're here to tell you, but Lydia, what is the content or theme of this week's episode. Okay, this week I will be giving a presentation to the class, the class of listeners. I Mm. gave a presentation yesterday in my American Legal History class. We had the option of either writing a 15-page paper or giving a 20 to 25-minute long presentation. And to me, the presentation sounds way easier, like writing a cohesive, properly cited no errors, 15 page paper. It just seems like Mm. impossible, but just standing up and talking for 20 minutes seems totally doable. It turns out I spent a lot of time on the presentation, so who knows, but it didn't feel like as onerous for some reason. No, I get that. I mean, when you're doing a presentation, you have like, there's, you know, um, pauses in your speech. There's like time for questions. People can interrupt you. I mean, it's, the 25 minutes would go by way faster than, you know, agonizing over writing a 15 page paper that would take hours and hours and hours. Completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Giving you know, my presentation is actually my meh, not to skip ahead too much, oh. but I, I have, I have 40 slides and it ended up only taking me 14 minutes. So I, I the professor like said it was good, and that it's fine that I went under, but like, there's so many things I could have talked about in this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally could have talked for more than 25 minutes, but I thought I was appropriately narrowing the subject and I just narrowed it too much. But so wait, 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 wait. What, what is the subject? Right. The subject is the eugenics movement in American legal history. So, um, a lot to work with there. And oh my God, yeah. I'll just let the listeners, this class, be the judge of whether I narrowed it too much or whether it's like a good introduction. And and we'll see. We'll see. Wow. About that. I'm super pumped. Um, do you know? Oh, I don't. I don't know if you'd be allowed to do this or if you'd if you'd want to do this. But um, I was thinking for interested listeners who wanted to follow along, we could link to the slide deck in the Twitter. But is that oh that's fine so i'm gonna um i was thinking of uploading it to the blog too before publishing the podcast but we could also like put it on the twitter i'm just going to edit the slides a little bit um 
before that because there's some like wash you specific stuff in there that's not like that relevant for sure and i'll probably take my name and date off of it because that's like not as important hmm. so. fair enough okay cool well listeners uh you can look for that when you are listening to this podcast listening along yeah. with us. i can't wait to hear your presentation i like very very briefly looked at it without really reading anything and the pictures were very eye-catching so yes oh yes yeah um okay you know oh that okay you're talking about having this presentation actually made me remember something that I hadn't written in the little show notes oh um, perfect but that I'm kind of excited about so remember how a couple episodes ago you helped me fine-tune my 30-second elevator pitch for myself yes how did it go um i got a 4.5 out of 5 so (laughs) i have no idea what the class average was and i don't know why i got dinged a half point but uh i'll take it absolutely yeah um so for that same class the law firm management class um my final presentation is due in just a little over a month and basically what I have to do is um, come up with like an entire business plan for a fake law firm that includes creation, creation. Wow. I was saying creation and creating at the same time. Yes. Yes. Creation, creating a website for my law firm, um, a, a budget and a couple other things. But the thing that really stands out is I have to, I have to shoot a 30 second or pardon me, a 30 seconds or a minute commercial for my law firm. And Hell yes. I th- I like love this because yes. it's the exact opposite of everything I've done in law school, which is rote memorization, regurgitation yeah. of rules and drafting of like memos and briefs and opinions and things. This is like, I get to be in acting school for a moment. And uh, what, do you have you do you have visions of it yet? I just want it to be like really cheesy. Like, have you experienced discrimination in oh. your workplace? <laughs> so I, I actually bring it up because I am in the process of like envisioning what this should be. And I and I am so drawn to the idea of going full on better call Saul, like toward attorney. Um, and like really hamming it up because like when I was looking at the 30 second elevator pitches, my classmates all take, like took themselves very seriously. You know, they like made sure to include their class rank and like all of their accolades. And I was like, guys, 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 like, I don't care. Like, I just, I want to know if I vibe with you, you know? Um, so I guarantee that these commercials are going to be kind of similar to that. And Hello, my name is Megan, and I'm an attorney trained at Elon Law. Like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Are like serious. This is this is why I'm trustworthy, and you should call me. Um, so I was telling Adam about this project, and he is very much team go full camp. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and so he was like, "You should be the law pickle," and I'm like, "The what?" And he was like, you know how you, you'll see commercials for like the law hammer or like the, the Texas law hawk, which is a real thing oh, that you should look up. Oh, yeah. He's like, you should be the law pickle. And I'm like, please explain this to me. Yes, <laughs> and he exactly. looks at me and he goes, my name's Megan. and I'm in a pickle. When life gets fickle, call the pickle. <laughs> and I'm like, 
<laughs> yes. What? It's Where was like, that? What, how long was he sitting on that? I have no <laughs> He's idea. Just waiting for the so opportunity like, to <laughs> perform that. I know. He's like, it only took two and a half years, but finally she can be the law pickle. Um, <laughs> so anyway, if you like have some free brain space, dear follower and Lydia, please let me know what you think I should do. Um, because I need to record uh, a commercial apparently. Um, I actually don't want to open this up to the listeners because you need to go with Adam's idea. I'm so like, I know brainstorming is like a good part of the creative process, but we've got it. We got it. We're good. (laughs) All right. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Law pickle. So I found myself at midnight last night on Amazon looking up pickle costumes. Yes. But I'm going to wait until after Halloween because I bet there will be like some sort of like deep discount on Halloween costumes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Law pickle. <sighs> anyway. In a pickle costume, but also wearing a suit over Whoa. the pickle costume. Maybe. <laughs> Oh my god. Anyways. I also need to like figure out this can't just be a one take commercial, like one continuous shot. I like oh, want no. this to have very low budget production value, but some production value. You know, I want to include like a couple cuts maybe. Oh yeah. So, if anybody oh, out there knows how to do that using an iPhone and a MacBook, let me know. Oh yeah. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll post it on the Twitter when I'm done. See how how self-deprecating I can get. Um, All right. Well, enough about that. (laughs) I should we do um, lows, mes, and highs before we talk about eugenics in America? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which is decidedly kind of a low, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you go. You go first. Maybe I'll start with mes. Because oh. I already gave my meh on my presentation. Okay. Like, what if we do meh, low, high? Kind of like a, the narrative arc of a comedy. Okay. I'm into that. Okay. So my meh, aside from my presentation being short, is that I had an I had a brunch recently. Did I did I record? Did we did I tell you about my ego brunch? Um. No. Like ego waffles. Yes. No. Okay, so this was only a meh because it was way too hot outside, even though it was, like, October. But it was, like, 80-something degrees outside in the sun. My backyard has a pergola, and so I was like, this will be so great. I'll have this brunch outside. And I, like, set it with my nice china, and I thought it was really cute. It was just so freaking hot. But that aside, the weather aside, I thought the brunch was a success. Um it started as a joke because I heard about the Kellogg workers striking and mm. asking people not to boycott Kellogg, but in fact to like buy their products to show how important the labor was to yeah. demand. And so the, you know, I guess the joke is like, are you sure they're striking? And then this isn't like something that the company is just telling people, oh yeah, buy our products. Um, but in <laughs> any case, I thought let's have an ego 
brunch. Like once I saw Ego on the list of like Kellogg brands, I was like, this is just funny to have like a trashy kind of a brunch that supports workers. Why not? And so I got like chocolate chip Eggos, normal Eggos. Oh. I couldn't find any like fake syrups that were made by Kellogg. That seems to be like a Conagra um, holding. But Kellogg makes the Morningstar brand of fake meats. So I had like some fake breakfast meats and there's mm. some coffee and um, it was great. <laughs> but any, uh any cinnamon bun sweets? No, no, no cinnamon bun sweets. Oh. Oh, I know. Um, do you have any mess? Me- oh, I, you know, I feel like most episodes, and generally in life, I come in, like, really hot with, like, I'm an optimist, the glass is always half full. But, Ooh, okay. Um, as of late, I have been... I am rolling in the mess, dude. I'm like really, really fucking struggling these days. Um, and, you know, I, I've like spent a lot of time trying to figure out why that is. Um, and I, I kind of have to roll my lows in with my mess. If, oh, no. okay. You will, yeah. you will oblige. Okay. Oh yeah. I'll oblige. Basically, I like have found myself in this really unproductive shitty holding pattern funk thing Mm -hmm. that I can't really seem to break out of. Um, And I have a really hard time articulating how I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it and why it persists. But basically I feel like Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day. (laughs) Have you seen this film? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's classic. It's like he, he 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 keeps reliving the same day over and over and over again. Um, however, unlike in Groundhog's Day, uh, mine is more a commentary on like how boring my life is and not like I was put under some spell <laughs> or like the universe broke open or something. Yeah, But I'm like reliving the same boring day over and over. I'd wake up, I have coffee, I listen to the daily, I shower, I sit at my desk, and then for the next eight hours I write I respond to emails I read on repeat Mm -hmm. and it just blows and like I'm wondering why like how this happened how this funk occurred and I'm thinking that it's because well I'm here I am touching on my high I'm graduating in 52 days which is whoa right that seems like just a couple months Dude, it's yeah. like seven Less weeks away. Holy crap. Which when I when I realized that today, that was a huge high. But because graduation is looming in the near future, and then right on the heels of that is just full-on bar study mode. Uh, yeah. Everything in these like in these last 10-ish days, and I'm imagining in like the next 50 days, kind of just feels like meaningless bullshit. <laughs> like <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's not even senioritis because senioritis has this like fun connotation. It, I think of like, oh, I'm just going to skip class and go to the beach and my hair is windswept and everything is fun and the future is yeah. great. But I'm like, I'm about to be in for the longest, darkest winter of my life. <laughs> and everything in the meantime feels fucking meaningless. And wow. when Shit. things feel meaningless like that, I think it's a pretty natural reaction to feel kind of sad. Yeah. 
And I've been feeling really sad recently for like no particular reason. Mm. But then when I feel sad, I get lethargic and like bored and it's hard for me to motivate myself to do stuff. Yeah. And then when I do motivate myself to do stuff, like leave my house, then I feel guilty about leaving my house because there's something I should be doing. But like I said, the schoolwork feels meaningless. And so it's like this perfect loop, you know? Yeah. And like, it's just, I've created this situation in which the funk persists and I can't get out of it. And I'll tell you what, this is like a really candid moment. But before law school, I never, ever thought, you know, I never wondered if I had depression, but uh-huh. law school, I like have, I've like wondered if I have depression on multiple occasions. And then I mean, well, it might be like, that like, law school gave you reason to have depressive episodes. Yeah. You know? Well, at law school during a global pandemic too, no less. Right? It's like, <laughs> I'm like so isolated, so generally kind of bored at this point like I'm like I just can't wait to be done with this yeah yeah and like Uh, I know you consolation that it's like almost over like does that help temper it or is it just kind of like like, that's the only thing I can think of to comfort you is like well it won't at least it's only for 52 days or whatever, but then you're like 52 entire days, you know, I don't know if that's actually comforting. <laughs> it is kind of, you know, it, it is more comforting than not because of just how, like when I, when I, I mean, when we together think about how long in the making our law degrees have been, 52 days yeah. feels like a drop in the bucket. Yeah. You know, we started talking about this in 2017 and started we took the LSAT in 2018. We were applying to law schools back then. We got in in 2019 and it's 2021. Like this has been a long time in the making, but yeah, that's kind wild. Of, the closer I get to graduation, the more acutely I'm feeling these feelings. Mm. And I was talking to Adam the other day and it's, and I was able to put words to it. It was like, I feel like for the last two years, I've just been muted. Ooh. Like everything about me, actually, except for this podcast, really. I mean, that's not even Aww. me just saying that. The <laughs> podcast is like the my like lifeline to creativity. But everything about my life before this, it, ha- it feels like it's just been like on pause. You know, I haven't done, aside from my annual holiday card, <laughs> I haven't done a single art project since beginning law school and I used to do that I really thought I would do more art in law school as my like like way to decompress from school but I don't have the energy to do it you know that is so sad it really is like think about what you just said like the thing that you love doing you Lydia of the two you are an artist like a proper artist yeah but I mean uh, yeah I haven't ridden my bike in almost an entire calendar year. I can't even believe Same. I'm saying I that can't out believe loud. It. Yeah. Same I here. used to ride my bike every single day. Every single day. I know the reason I'm not riding my bike, which is that I got a car during the pandemic. Like <laughs> I, before that I did ride my bike because I had to. And it was still nice, even though I had to. 
but then when you have this other super easy option, it's like, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely. I, I too did not have a car before law school. So, um, there, that is definitely, um, contributing factor, but I mean, dang. Yeah. Ugh, man. So that's, that's my low, but if, I'm going to dovetail it into my meh because when okay. I get really, really sad, I think about what I'm going to do once this long, dark winter is over um, and I pass the bar and I'm just your average everyday working gal. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I cheer myself up with like thoughts of the future and all yeah. the things I want to do. And I want to take a woodworking class hell yeah (laughs) like I want to go camping I want to make art for the walls in my house I have so many books that I haven't been able to finish that aren't law school books and I want to finish those and you know what I might even fuck around and get into Legos because a friend of mine recently finished a Lego project that was a full-on typewriter and it looked so cool wow Legos have gotten cooler than I remember yeah, I mean, it was like the type, it didn't actually function as a typewriter, but you could press the keys and it would hit a piece of paper like an actual typewriter would. I mean, oh, that's cool. So cool. Might get into that. I don't know. It's just that my point is like the possibility, like it's on the horizon now. It's so tangible. Yes. I'm so close. And I just want to be. Done. So that sounds kind of like a high, but the meh is just that that's not the reality yet. Like that you're yeah. stuck just thinking about it. Okay. Okay. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. My my high is that I graduate in 52 days, which is yeah. pretty awesome. I um, see how all of these things are kind of like wrapped in. Like you kind of have to present all of these as one kind of just like uh state of the union. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put it. This is yeah, this is how I'm feeling. Like it is sort of fun too to like state think about right. Like I I enjoy being candid on this podcast because we both have been pretty candid from the beginning and it's like fun, quote unquote, fun to listen to like older episodes and think about the headspace we were in then. And I know that in six months when you are like staring down graduation um, and I will have been past it and I will have like, you know, knock on wood past the bar. It'll be yes. like fun to be like, oh yeah, I remember 52 days before graduation. I was in a bad place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here we go. I thought you were going to say um, you like recording it because it's like fun to listen to other people suffering. Like I thought you meant like for the oh sake of God. listeners. I was like, that's also true. We're here to entertain. Um, but no, you're right. It was such a good like log for ourselves. Yeah. And I do hope that if there's somebody, I'm confident that there are people that listen to these episodes and relate to these feelings. Like I cannot be the only person out here who feels stuck in a funk like that. No, I relate. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. The collective suffering is, it, it, it makes the suffering feel a little bit lighter. Absolutely. Like I'm not facing graduation yet, but my low is like, kind of similar in that in the like stuck feeling because Mm. I'm like still overwhelmed by my new apartment I'm like still unpacking 
still just like, uh, things don't look how I want them to look. And I had put so much like excitement into having this huge new apartment. And I'm like, I would have been happier still in my little tiny ass apartment Mm. just because I wouldn't have had to go through all the moving and I wouldn't have had to like re figure all of my belongings and just like being around. I don't know if you played the Sims growing up, but like, Oh, for sure. How else did you decide which, which person from your class you were going to date? Did you not make a Sim of everybody in the class (laughs) and see what the Sims were doing? Is that that how you did that? But it's like one of the things that impacted their mood was like that room. It just says room. It's like hunger, whatever, sociability. And then one of them was just the word room, which meant like the aesthetic atmosphere of wherever they were standing. So if you built an ugly house for them, like just a concrete like box for them, their room would be really low. But once you started hanging art, it would go high, whatever. And so I'm just like, oh, my room, like lever, like not lever. What's that called? Like Um, measure the room. Yes. Yes. Is just like constantly low because I'm like surrounded by stuff. Yeah. And the solution to that is just take a day or two and just like devote time to unpacking. But I find that so overwhelming. So I'll do a little bit and then get like distracted by something in a box. (laughs) Oh, anyways. Well, that and like the longer you let this go on, the less incentive you have to do anything about it because you're no, you know, you're leaving. exactly yeah so I guess it is kind of related to graduation in that sense um yeah but I have high I have a law related high please just that bring me back up bring me back up Lydia okay so we we know that I had bought a house during quarantine and then I kind of gave up on the house and then I sold the house well, I had a purchase agreement with someone for the house. Well, it finally went through, which I might have said last week, like the money came through. And so I I prepared like the general warranty deed and like the stuff you need for St. Louis County and then sent that with a check into the St. Louis County recorder of deeds, That's which is like awesome. something you learn about in property class. But um, I just did it all on my own. I was like, it's worth the risk to just read the instructions and do it myself. And if it didn't work, then I'll hire an attorney or whatever. But it it worked. I got the confirmation from the County Record of Deeds. They're like, okay, we've recorded this person now as like, you know, the grantee, grantor, grantee, whatever, all that stuff. That's awesome, so dude. it's like, wow, I sold a house without a lawyer. Like, I was my lawyer. Um, you are a lawyer now. Well, uh, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, but I still have to like, there's like one loose end with the house. I guess I should have put that as a meh, <laughs> which is just that I have to like stop service for all the utilities and stuff mm-hmm. and like pay off random stuff. Like I haven't paid the trash bill, so I need to pay the trash bill mm. and random stuff. But that's it won't take more than one afternoon. <laughs> it's just once that's done, it'll actually be done because I all of the legal stuff is done. So that's cool. And I have two other kind of highs one is that i've been really enjoying watching the show survivor which i've never watched oh my god i'm sorry i love survivor okay (laughs) i just like i genuinely always thought that survivor was like people dropped on an island and then they had to survive like i thought it was naked and afraid basically i didn't realize that like it was all these games and like all of the social strategy and 
I don't know. I just, I didn't, I, I didn't know because I never watched it. And from the, just the title alone, I made a lot of assumptions, but my friend Evie is a contestant this season. <gasps> what? And, yeah. And they're doing so great. It's just like, I don't get any secondhand embarrassment watching them, which is so nice because on reality TV, you just never know. Like there's some yeah. people who look bad. You know. This is blowing my mind. I'm, I'm sure I've told you that oh. Survivor was like my pandemic like rediscovery. I mean, maybe you told me and I just didn't register because I was like, oh, that's just one of those reality shows I don't watch, you know? Because I, I I really think you would be so good at it. At Survivor? You think I would be good? Yeah. This is like really the biggest so. compliment you could give me. You would be, you have a lot of like handy skills, but also just socially, I think you would be able to like befriend people in your tribe and like do the challenge at like beat, like keep in high spirits. Like, I think you would think it was really fun instead of just yeah. going like just to compete and win money. Like, Absolutely. I don't know. Wow. Wow. This is you. You are really making my day. My spirits have have soared hearing you talk about this. We're going to have to offline about Survivor because I have feelings. Okay. Have you been watching it this season? Have you seen Not this season. I'm I've. I started like on season one and I I've watched consecutively, but like almost I've probably watched 20 seasons. Okay, wow. That's the level I'm at. That's another reason you'd be good at Survivor because you, like, know what strategies have worked and not worked in the past. Well, I I just started this season because I'm, like, mostly doing it because it's so cool to know someone on it. And so um, shout out to my classmates, Millie and Courtney, who come over and watch it with me every week. It's, like, really sweet because I don't know. Like, it's just... When you're in law school, you have no idea what shared interests you have with your classmates. But then <laughs> I hate that the truth. Courtney texted me to be like, I saw on Instagram that you're friends with Evie. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so she like kind of coordinated this like survivor viewing party. And it's really sweet. They can explain everything to me, which is very helpful. But that's oh. been a high. And then I feel like related to that, just socializing, meeting new people. Um, like I went to a party with like mostly two L's on Friday. Shout out to Gavin. Happy birthday, buddy. Uh, had a great party. And I don't know. These were all the people that I didn't get to meet last year when we were all remote. And I even hung out with a one L recently and I'm just like, wow, this is great. I mean, when you go back to school for grad school, it's like your last chance kind of at being in an environment where you're just surrounded by like young, smart people Especially when you're in your 30s going back and you're like, oh, hang out with this, all this young energy again. This is so nice. So yeah. remember I, when our joints didn't pop every time we stood up after sitting down for a long time? Uh, yeah. So, so oh, it's just so nice to like either get together with people to watch Survivor or um, going. I'm going to go out after we record this to my like journals social event where there's like a tab at this bar that's having trivia and I'm joining a team with mostly two L's. Um, Cause that's who I happened to text about the event. And I'm like, wow, this is just, ugh, this is great. You know, all I, I joined this journal while it was the pandemic did all of this freaking work for this journal. 
not freak. I shouldn't say that. I learned stuff. It was worthwhile. <laughs> I talked about it during my interviews. I talked about it with my coworkers. Like it's like helpful sometimes for networking and all that. But one of the huge benefits of joining a journal is the socializing of it and like getting together in the journal office to do work for journal together. And I just didn't have that at all. So I'm finally getting like the benefits of all of these things that I was doing remotely. I love that for you. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm glad about it. Yeah. It's pretty much my update. I don't have, I don't think I've had any wild animal encounters. Have you? Wild animal encounters. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, I don't think so. A domesticated animal. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, my domesticated animals bring me so much joy. I love seeing them. They're really just, do. they're so perfect, but so perfect. nobody wants to hear about that. Oh, <laughs> I did get to play with a kitten. Um, my friend Helena got a kitten and it was really fun. I haven't played with a kitten in a long time. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the last time I played with a kitten. Yeah. Anyways. Um, Anyways. Okay, we've covered it all. We're let's, doing uh, great. Let's let's jump into a, a lighter topic. How, how about um, oh, God. Uh, okay. American eugenics? <laughs> so this, yes, this is my presentation. We've, in my American legal history class, been talking a lot about, I think at this point we're at... Um, the end of the Civil War. And so I didn't mean to time it this way, but I picked a movement that started in like the mid 19th century and goes, pairs really well with like the topics that we've been talking about in class about uh, racism in the US. And so the, it's kind of ties in, but people gave top, people are giving presentations on like, anything in American legal history. It's a great class. If you're at WashU, you should definitely take it. But yes, I will be presenting on the eugenics movement in American legal history. And I will put this on the blog, on the Twitter to follow along. So if you haven't done that, pause the podcast, pull it up. <laughs> and I guess I'll just say like when to move the slide. And maybe if you're like listening to this on a, on a run or something, um, Shout out to Rachel, who listens on her own sometimes. Uh, then we can like kind of briefly describe what's on there, but we won't describe it too much in detail because that'd be kind of boring, and would really lengthen the the timing of the presentation. So before I begin, I'll just give a content warning that the mm. topic is very disturbing. So just um. You know, if you turn off the podcast, uh, I will not be offended. It's just, it's just really disturbing, disturbing stuff. This, the first slide just is the title of the talk. Um, and I'll briefly talk about the word eugenics. It was coined in 1883, 26 years before the word gene was coined. So really, yeah. Um, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm already piquing your interest. Okay, so eugenics is Greek for good birth, and so at the time it didn't mean good genes; it meant good birth. But we can think of it as good genes because that's it turned essentially what it is. Wait, okay, I definitely am like having a chicken or the egg moment. So if eugenics came before the word gene, was the word gene 
like is a derivative of eugenics? I'm sure it also has like a Greek root, okay, but I don't okay. think it was a direct reference to eugenics. Okay. Um, so let's go to slide two. This is a poster for eugenics that is uh, provides us a further definition. So this is a poster that says eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution. So eugenicists believe that encouraging procreation of certain groups and discouraging procreation of others would allow the human species to continue to evolve. And it's a history of racism, ableism, and classism undertaken in the name of progressivism. Like the only heroes in the story are like conservatives, uh, which is a, which is just telling about the history of progressivism. Really. Which, yeah, I'm just like not seeing any heroes in the story yet, but keep going. Oh no, no, I, I mean, <laughs> in their like, narrative telling of this back against eugenics. Okay. So slide three just says historical context. There was a lot happening in the late 19th, early 20th century. So I'm just going to provide a few highlights that inform the legal history. Okay. Slide four shows the like gibbon, orangutan, chimpanzee, gorilla, man, and the progression. So the first fascinating. The so, first piece, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to describe what I was looking at. Oh, well, this is this slide is just standing in for that Darwin published his theory of evolution in 1859. So, like, that's the first piece of historical context okay. that I'll provide. But, yeah, you can you can definitely describe it. Well, I mean, so when when you're looking at this progression of gibbon, orangutan, chimpanzee, gorilla, man, it's kind of presented in a way where you're, where you're thinking, okay, from the gibbon was born the orangutan, was born the chimp. So you're getting this sort of like progression. However, I think that the closest likeness is gibbon and man. <laughs> I know, it's, but look at the arms. I so see the like arms, these... but I mean, like, I've seen That's some funny, folks yeah. with long arms. I don't know. <laughs> the size, it's the scale is off too. We all know chimpanzees are way short, like smaller than men and than humans. But yeah, no, I hear you. Um, Darwin also had like sketches in his sketchbook of different like trees of evolution, but they're so kind of hard to follow that I didn't put that on the slide. Mm. <laughs> um, so let's go to slide five. So Darwin only focused on the development of animals but his ideas were applied to human society by many different theorists, notably his cousin, Francis Galton. And like the idea of social Darwinism, for example, is not something that Darwin himself ever spread. Um, mm -hmm. but, but that application leads to horrifying posters such as the one on slide five, God, which yeah. maybe, maybe you could read Describe. or yeah. yeah so so this poster it kind of it looks like two pieces of paper kind of next to each other on the left hand side you have this heading that says marriages fit and unfit and then pr it proceeds to give you a list of pairings so the first pairing oh this is so hideous yeah is, we don't have to read all of them yet but right just to give you an idea pure and pure so if you have two pure people then their children will be normal but right. then you have like one that's like tainted and pure. Children could be pure and normal or normal but tainted. I mean, it's really gross. 
Yeah, it really reminds me of, um, like, did you ever have to make those, I think they're called genome charts? Squares, yeah. Yes, yes. Like that. Yeah, we did this when Adam you... and I were trying to figure out if our kids would have blue or brown eyes. <laughs> Turns out it's a 50-50. Well, probably... We really? Know. He has recessive blue eye genes? Well, or sorry, you have... I, so my eyes are brown, but um, right. my dad and everybody else... My mom is the only person with brown eyes. Everybody else has blue or green. Uh, and then Adam's family, they all have blue eyes. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So the um, that like square kind of thing was developed in 1905. So this okay. is like definitely... Um, in the in the time frame where they're like, oh, we can take this thing from science about like you know eye color the, and and apply it to like oh, pure people and abnormal people make abnormal like you have a higher likelihood of having abnormal children and you're like, well, okay, <laughs> yeah, come on now. and and like yeah, read the right side of the poster too because I feel like that makes it seem even less reasonable. So the right side of the poster says, how long are we Americans to be so careful for the pedigree of our pigs and chickens and cattle and then leave the ancestry, this this part's underlined, the ancestry of our children to chance or to blind sentiment? Yeah, yeah. So we the first piece of historical context is this application of um, Darwin's theory to human societies and kind of like in the philosophical realm, we had like a kind of like a, uh, an elevation of like scientific ideals overcoming this natural law idea, or like, I guess Darwin kind of like disrupted the natural law idea that like all humans have like certain like humans are exceptional because like god created them in his image you know these kind of like oh no humans are special humans should be like that's why some of the conservatives are the heroes in this story because they're not just rejecting posters like this they're also rejecting evolution you know they're like Mm -hmm. no no like none of this like monkeys to humans thing like humans are special and they're right that humans are special and that every human has human dignity but you know anyways um that's that discussion is outside the scope of this presentation Mm -hmm. but that's just to say that that's one of the things happening here then we should go to slide six this is a um life expectancy growth chart where at the end of the 19th century, early of the 20th, early 20th century, we see like pretty steady growth, really until the depression when there's a dip. But um, there were a lot of improvements in medicine and technology that increased lifespan and allowed survival for more than just like quote unquote the fittest. Mm. So we've got toilets invented in 1875, pasteurization in 1890, air conditioning in 1902, blood transfusions in 1913, water chlorination in 1919, insulin in 1922, sorry, 1922, antibiotics in 1928. This is just a time of a lot of like growth in that area. Shout out to toilets. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sanitation and, and toilets are just, yeah, love it. So we have 
the like survival of whole groups of people who might not have otherwise survived, which eugenicists would be like, oh, uh oh. Um, and then when you pair that with slide seven, uh, which is uh, diagrams of phrenology and craniometry, this aspect of science was still very crude. Psychology was crude. Phrenology, which is the study of head measurements to determine mental faculty. I think most of us can like envision that poster um, where like one little like blob in your brain is like devoted to love and one blob in your brain is devoted to like, you know, housework. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah, like, yes, like uh, you're getting like the profile of a person, like a drawing yeah. profile. And then, yeah, you're having like the brain like dissected into different segments. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this yeah. is your love part of the brain. And this it, is yeah. your, yeah, whatever part. Sure. Right. And okay. So that had been mostly discredited by the middle of the 19th century. But there was, it was still in like the popular imagination because it hadn't yet been replaced by the competing theory. Or by like the next theory, which was psychoanalysis, which was just a little bit later. So on this slide, <laughs> there's one of, one of the pictures I've included is of like parental love. And the woman on the left has like a very large head <laughs> and it says the good mother. And the woman on the right has like kind of a flat back of her head and it says the unmotherly. Oh my God. Christ. <laughs> I actually couldn't read that because it was so small. So what, oh, is, yeah, what that, are we supposed to take away from this? That good mother, the bigger the head, the gooder the mother? I, I'm not sure. I would have to see the data. I, I Like so much correlative data. And so that leads us to number eight. So thank you for asking that question. This is a slide with just the, like a distribution under a bell curve. And in the 1870s, this started to be referred to as like the normal curve. And all of these types of like measurements uh, of observed phenomena, like head size, were found to follow a bell curve. And researchers also tried to fit data on elusive traits like intelligence into the curve. Mm. So we had, I don't have a slide on this because it didn't make the cut, but we had IQ tests starting in, I think it was like 18, yeah, I think it was 1882 that so a couple dec a couple decades after the french revolution france made like free compulsory education for all children before that it was like private schools where like if you were poor you could ask for a fee waiver but once they made free public education compulsory they had children who had never been in school before who were like older than five years old like what do you do with a nine-year-old who's never been to kindergarten like to put people in the right but but might have like learned stuff in the world so how do you sort people in the right grades they got a guy named alfred benet to make this test oh i need to i should send i i should have included a picture of like one of the tests but it's basically like it's stuff that's just absurd. Like you would have like pictures of different women and be like, which one's the pretty one? That oh. kind of intelligence. Yeah, not the type. It's definitely was like very, very imperfect from the beginning. Um, but the data set for intelligence, if you go to slide nine, increased dramatically when the US Army began administering intelligence tests as part of its recruitment during World War One. So with tons of army recruits taking this now we can 
chart um, things and see how they fall along a curve and like right. make like predictions about that, I guess. But one effect because, of this. Like, this is like the, because the sample size is so much bigger. Like the bigger yeah, the exactly. sample size, the more reliable the result, right? When it's something like. Well, yes. Like but as we'll see or... in the next slide, it is like the test itself is flawed, but I think we all know that. But yeah, wow. you can still do more with the data when there's more of it. But one effect of this, maybe you can guess what it is, Megan. What's one of the effects of having a data set of this of this group? Of this uh of oh, the World War One recruits. Of this particular day. Well, they're it's it's they're all like the same demographics. Yeah. Right? They're all yeah. young white men. <laughs> so yeah, that's all young white men. Our standards for intelligence. Um, right, so like just flawed from the beginning. So go to slide 10 because this is an example of one of the army tests. This was I couldn't even test. begin to describe this. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll explain what the like goal is and then maybe you can like envision if you're just listening what it looks like. But this is one of the tests for illiterate recruits. So they had like an alpha test for literate recruits and a beta test for illiterate recruits. So it was picture based. So there's 20 pictures, 20 little like illustrations, and each of them is missing something and you have to identify what's missing. So like number oh. six is a bunny with one ear and you have to say like, oh, it's missing another ear. But um, this was, so this was World War One before electric lighting was standard in all homes. I mean, I think by, I forget when, it was like standard, but it definitely wasn't. It was like it later, it later than the twenties or something. So number seven, which is an electric light missing a filament. If you're an illiterate recruit in World War One, okay. chances that you would know that, you know. Call me an illiterate recruit because honestly, <laughs> when I was looking at this test, number seven was perplexing me. I'm like, what is it missing? That looks like a whole light bulb to me. Honestly. Right? It's missing the filament. <laughs> okay. And then, okay. And, and then like, so number 18 is a phonograph. Well, you might not have that either. Number nine, a violin. I don't know. You might not have, you might not. Oh, is it missing the strings? God, yeah. I would fail this test. And like, you know, 12 at least is quite um, rural instead of urban. There's a pig eating and the pig is missing the tail. But like. I literally would not have known that. <laughs> What's the crab missing? I don't know. The crab is missing a leg on the left side. If you had more time oh, or just put on the spot. My like this. God. But like, look at number eight. If you're um, an illiterate recruit, how are you going to know what's missing on an envelope that's been addressed when you probably don't write letters? It looks like it's missing the stamp to me. But yeah, that's what oh, I would have How are you supposed to know that? Um, so... Yeah, some of them stumped me too. I was like, what's missing in 16? I don't know. What's the gun missing? I I think it's missing the trigger, but I'm not sure. Okay. And then yeah. number 10 has stumped everyone. Oh, let's let let's let the listeners email in. Look at the look at the slideshow. Like look at number 10. Tell us what it's missing. Unless you know it, Megan. I think it's the um, is it the little like uh bottle opener screw thing? Oh, I hadn't thought about like missing such a huge thing. I thought it was just like a Swiss army knife that had these two blades, but yeah, maybe it was understood that like Swiss army knives had more things. That is interesting. I think that's why it's open, but what do I know? 
I, mm-hmm. I didn't know that the light bulb was missing filament and I completely missed that the pig was missing <laughs> a tail and okay. I don't Funny. know what's wrong with the gun. So don't listen to me. What about number five? Number five. Okay. I'm looking at a house. Damn. I don't know what's you missing this. from this. You got this. You got this. Okay. I'm seeing a house. Oh man. Is it that the chimney doesn't come yes. all the way up through yes. the, okay. Wow. Got it. See, I see you would get it if you like, you know, if I would, but anyways, that's slide number 10. That's just to give you like, so we have this huge data set about intelligence, but first of all, the test is flawed. And secondly, it's very skewed towards one demographic. So, all right. Number 11 shows how some of this data was categorized and it's a pie chart where we have certain things categorized as feeble minded and others as not feebly minded. So the not feebly minded examples are like physically, quote unquote, defective, insane, morally helpless, quote unquote, normal and no information. And then the feeble minded ones are words that we often use as like cinnamon, cinnamon, wow, synonyms, cinnamons, (laughs) Uh, imbeciles, morons and idiots. So go to the next slide, number 12. Mm hmm. This shows what the difference is between those words from this mindset at the time. This is a, uh, maybe you could describe this one. I just, wow, this is, I mean, okay. So this screenshot by the way, from like a report given to a legislative body. So this was not, yeah. To me, the first thing that comes to mind when I look at this image is um, the sketches that are in Shel Silverstein books of poetry. Yeah, you're right. Wow, yeah. that's sad. But yeah. yeah. So, that's <laughs> so yeah, imagine like a Shell Silverstein hand drawing, except we're measuring, um, you're essentially scaling people from idiots on one end to morons on the other. The idiot, and they're kind of scaled like, um, like steps, right? So the idiot is sitting at the bottom of the steps and the moron is all the way at the top of the steps. And along the way, you have low-grade imbeciles, medium imbeciles, and high-grade imbeciles. And then underneath each of them is a quick description of the type of work that that person is capable of doing. So it's where they stumble, it says. Oh, it's where they stumble. Where they stumble. Okay, my bad. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. And that that's why they have steps, because you would stumble. On so they can't get up to the next step. Ugh. Got it. Got it. It's, yeah... And I, I find this diagram kind of reminiscent of Darwin's development kind of diagrams. I mean, it's put onto steps, which is different, but it is kind of this like idea of like the range mm-hmm. of like progression. So, um, so that that's kind of what's what's going on. And so we've set the scene. We've set the scene. Slide thirteen says cultural spread. And um, so the idea that, one, intelligence can be measured, two, that this was correlated with someone's worth in society, and three, that those with less worth in society are bringing down those with more worth, Hmm. was really popular with names we're still familiar with in slide 14. However, this section is about how it was a fully cultural movement and not just a political conspiracy by like a few bad political actors. So slide 14 shows some like pretty damning quotes by Theodore Roosevelt and Winston Churchill 
but I just, the point of the section is, is yeah, uh, how widespread it was in the U.S. Um, what do you think about these quotes? Um, I wasn't actually reading the quotes. I was looking at the next slide because I'm in shock. Megan! I'm sorry. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to, I can just read one of the quotes. Yeah, and you can, can and you listener can take our recording out of context when if we ever try to do something publicly. So um, I shouldn't read it. <laughs> yeah. Um wait, I'm still do I read them or not? I'm sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, I think we should. Okay, this is so um this is from our good old Teddy Roosevelt. Someday we will realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty of the good citizen of the right type is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world. And that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type. Yeah. Damn. Interesting, like, we and permit. Even, like, the just the word choices is really indicative. And then I'll read this quote by Winston Churchill. I feel that the source from which all the streams of madness is fed should be cut off and sealed up before the year has passed. Jesus. Oh, my God. A simple surgical operation would allow these individuals to live in the world without causing much inconvenience to others. Wow. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. So these are these are both examples. So there's um, in the eugenics movement. There's positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Not that is not a judgment of like good and bad. I mean, by positive eugenics, I mean encouraging the quote unquote good individuals to procreate. And then negative projects are those that are preventing quote unquote bad individuals from procreating. Got so it. both of these quotes are about like prevention, but a lot of the what was popular in culture was about the positive eugenics of like, let's try to promote people from um i'm oh, sorry promote like people to procreate so oh slide 15 the one you were looking ahead at is a, an example of negative eugenics where yeah this is this is from 1934 uh june 1934 edition of the magazine called physical culture where the tagline is the personal problem magazine but they oh, seem to have made personal problems into like other people's problems <laughs> Because uh, can you describe what? Uh... So yeah, I'm looking at um, a drawn, a hand drawn image. It's very beautiful um, of this like kind of svelte woman wearing a uh, mustard onesie, and she's smiling. And around her are pieces of text that are like pull quotes from I think probably the articles within the magazine. Um, one of them says, "Sorry, I've been a good boy." a new basis of conduct. Another one says, just without any quotations around it, the valves <laughs> of your heart, who knows. Um, but the one thing that my eyes really were drawn to was um, the biggest, boldest text says, shall we breed or sterilize defectives? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. So that was just like, people thought that was fine to put on a magazine. So that, that indicates the cultural spread. And then the next couple of slides are devoted to positive eugenics projects. So slide 16 shows um, this booth for the American Eugenics Society. There were these societies all across the U.S. And 17 is one of those societies 
like tents for the fitter families contest, which gave prizes for the most like perfect families to try to popularize eugenics. Slide 18 has some of the contestants from the 1931 better babies contest. Um, they're, they're all white babies that yeah, by the spoiler alert, not that you're going to be shocked by this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll skip slides 19 and 20 because they're washi related. So the new slide 19 will be about some of the pushback. Oh, oops. I also forgot (laughs) that Planned Parenthood, you might know this, was started as a negative eugenics project. I did not know that. You didn't? Okay, so in 1921, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, wrote, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. Oh my, this is blowing my mind. Like the current Planned Parenthood organizations have like completely disavowed that and their mission is like, couldn't be farther. Well, it's not true. It could be farther from that. <laughs> they could be trying <laughs> to get everyone pregnant, but yeah, it is not, not aligned with the eugenics projects. That's crazy. That it started that way, yeah. So the new slide 19 shows um, pushback in in culture. There were scientists who criticized eugenics research methods. Then there were sociologists who argued for like the effects of social conditions on test outcomes. And like I mentioned before, the most united opposition was from Catholics mm-hmm. and like Catholics and conservatives, but not conservative Protestants. It was really Catholics that get the credit for this. And they prevented sterilization laws in like Louisiana, for example, had a lot of Catholic legislatures, legislators, but even there, um, like the sterilization bill failed with a vote of 48 to 46. So it was really close. Not great. Um, 19, uh, sorry, not 1922, LOL. Uh, not even slide 22, because I'm subtracting two from each of these. So slide 20, the new slide 20, just says legal history because now, now that I'm halfway through my presentation, I'm actually going to talk about legal history. <laughs> um, but yes, the law was used to prevent certain groups from procreating. So the law was used for negative eugenics projects. We didn't like fund, we didn't have like policies for positive eugenics programs that I know about, but they would try to prevent certain groups from procreating by preventing interracial marriages implementing forced sterilization policies and restricting immigration. Okay, so so this is interesting to me. On slide, I can't keep up with the quote-unquote new slide, so I'm just going to say this is slide 23, right? Yeah. It looks to me like a political map that you would see today, like dividing Democrats and Republicans. Roughly, obviously not a clear cut, but why is it that the South is always united on everything, seemingly? Okay, well, okay, just remember the time frame. This wasn't that long after the Civil War. So you're you're looking at, I mean, I can't speak to why things are so united and shitty today, but um, what you're looking at in this slide, the new slide 21, is a map of uh, miscegenation laws. So laws that uh-huh. like interracial marriage by repeal date. Gray means no laws were passed ever. Green means they were repealed before 1888, which is pretty good. 
Yellow means repealed between 1948 and 1967, and then red means repealed on June 12, 1967, which was with the Supreme Court case Loving v. Virginia. So all those southern states that are red had miscegenation laws on the books until that, okay. which I'm just struck by how recent that was and could have affect, like would have affected many of our grandparents, of those listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I... I'm mostly talking about forced sterilization in this presentation, so that's my one slide on miscegenation laws, but there, that could be its own presentation for sure. So slide 24, um, it just says, a special report of the State Board of Charities and Corrections to the General Assembly of 1916 on weak-mindedness in the state of Virginia, together with a plan for training, segregation, and prevention of the procreation of the feeble-minded. Um, wow. So Harry Laughlin was the name of the guy who ran the super, he was a superintendent of the eugenics record office for its duration from 1910 to 1933. And he wrote a model law on forced sterilization for states to use. The plan was to sterilize 10% of the population. So like the left end of the bell curve, which was around 10, 10 million people at the time. And the plan was to start with people who were in state-run institutions and then reach the feeble-minded and general population like over the course of a couple decades. So slide 25 is a map of eugenics legislation and states began implementing forced sterilization laws starting in Indiana in 1907. And in the end, laws were passed in 33 states, which is a lot. Wow. Slide 20, oh, slide 26, sorry, the new 24, is an example of a state order for sterilization. Whoa. And yeah, maybe you can describe it. I find it, like, quite short, really. Um, so, yeah, I can describe it. The It looks like you're pretty, like, a standard form that you would fill out, like, when you go to the doctor, you know, or whatever. Um so it says Virginia at the top and then in bold before the state hospital board at and then the institution name you would fill in. Um, and it would and then it's like in regard to and then you'd fill in, I'm assuming your name. And this is an mm -hmm. order for a sexual sterilization. Yeah. So it kind of reads like a court petition. I think it probably yeah. is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Upon the petition of blank, you would fill that in superintendent of blank so you're getting the hospital's permission or the doctor's permission and then it says and on uh, and upon consideration of the evidence introduced at the hearing of this matter the board finds that the said inmate is and then you're given um a list that you can check off so yeah. you could say like the the uh, inmate is insane idiotic imbecile feeble-minded epileptic and then um, from there it says, and by the law of heredity, the laws of heredity yeah. is probably potential parent of socially inadequate offspring, likewise affected, that the said inmate may be sexually sterilized without detriment to their general health and the welfare of the inmate. Yeah. Sorry. It's and of society small... <laughs> will be promoted by the sterilization. Wow. So. Yeah. So yeah, that is just, it's just so clear. Oh, well, just circle which one. Oh, well, oh, they're feeble minded and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sign off. Yeah. 
that's so scary that it's like just this one form yeah so um so this was state by state and some states state laws were challenged by by state courts and the iowa supreme court for example ruled that its state law was unconstitutional but if you check out slide 2025 the new 25 um the Supreme Court ruled that state sterilization laws were not unconstitutional in Buck v. Bell in 1927. So I'll talk about that for a little bit. This is Carrie Buck on the left and her mother, Emma Buck. And if you see on slide 28, um, or sorry, the new 26, they were both deemed feeble-minded. Carrie's infant daughter even showed, quote-unquote, backward like quote-unquote showed backwardness what? whatever that means this as a baby so was also deemed feeble-minded yeah so here's the thing about carrie buck she had attended school like her mom i think maybe had epilepsy or or something she had already been kind of like ruled off in society but mm-hmm. carrie had attended school reached sixth grade um but then was committed to the Virginia colony for the epileptic and feeble-minded after giving birth out of wedlock. The pregnancy, oh, was wow. a result, the pregnancy was a result of rape, but she was deemed, quote-unquote, like, incorrigible and immoral and was sterilized in the institution and then was used as a test case to get the issue to the Supreme Court. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And then Harry Laughlin, who I mentioned before, who was the superintendent of the eugenics record office, Never met the Bucks, but like wrote in like a sworn affidavit that they were of quote the shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of anti-social whites of the South. End quote. Yeah, really, really, just horrible. Um, so slide the next slide has this is like um, from the opinion of the case, which was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who a lot of people think was a really great judge, but this was definitely a low light of his career. I have uh, put in like yellow highlighting some of the like key pieces of logic at work in the case. So the different like factors that were considered here and some of the assumptions which we can see are like kind of like very wrong, but this is what they were thinking at the time. One, the person who's being sterilized has had due process of law because as we saw from like the the like state sterilization um like form a couple slides ago mm-hmm. it said things like upon consideration of the evidence introduced at the hearing by the laws of heredity like the uh, in theory the person could like have introduced like could have done something in that hearing but yeah, so that that's obviously flawed, but that was also like, what are the chances that person has like competent legal representation? Yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's like literally so many things. So it's like, okay, they've had due process of law. Two, the procedure has no detriment to their general health. It's not like we're killing them so that they won't like have offspring. That it has no detriment to their general health, and in fact, like could increase their quality of life, but. You know, we know like now that it was like quite a risky procedure for women who were being sterilized. For men who were being sterilized, it was pretty low risk. 
but like there there were like plenty of infections sure. that happened due to these i think they're called salpingectomy i don't know <laughs> but it wasn't technically a hysterectomy it was something else mm. three the sterilization is justified as a measure of public welfare because it's going to make all of society better and this was like after World War One, what so Oliver Wendell Holmes is saying, we're asking some people to like risk their lives for our country. We just did that. We just asked so many people to risk their lives. And all we're asking of these people is this small thing, you know? Yeah. The, the line that you didn't highlight this, but that sticks out to me is, quote, it would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser yeah. sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my so the God. lesser sacrifices thing is what I'm pointing out, but you're right, right that like they're saying like, yeah, they they. <gasps> oh my God! Saying where they sap the the strength of the state, and then yeah, swamped. Yeah, to yeah. to prevent being swamped with incompetence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the wording of this is is just horrible. Another thing it goes on to say is like another assumption and part of the logic here is that. Like children are just better off not being born than being born into poverty with feeble-minded parents, which, you know, we can think of kind of societal solutions for, for children who have parents who are poor might be to give the parents some assistance, (laughs) but instead they're just, oh God, the poor children, they should just not be born. And then um, another key part of the last key part of this is that compulsory vaccination was deemed constitutional in the case Jacobson v. Massachusetts. And that provides the precedent because if we are allowing states to have compulsory vaccination for the public good, then that is is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Yeah. I I could see how they could justify it too. It's like, they're not what they're they're saying like a vaccination this isn't going to hurt them this is going to help them if anything so it's not like an overreach you can see the logic here like yeah it's oh just it's so based on like just horrible like as a piece of logic it kind of works but we can't like that doesn't mean that it's okay you know yeah you need context behind it Come on. You need to question the assumptions of it and like think of other solutions here. But then the worst line is the last one. And it's what's most um, associated with this case. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. So they're they're referring to like Carrie, Emma, and Carrie's daughter. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that with that, um, the states were allowed to keep their sterilization laws. Then lastly, the next slide is from the Immigration of Act of 1924, which limited ethnic group entry into the U.S. by quota based on the ethnic group's 1890 census count. So it says the annual quota of any nationality shall be two, sorry, nationality, not ethnicity, shall be 2% percentum of the number of foreign-born individuals of such nationality resident in continental U.S. as determined by the U.S. Census of 1890. And if you're thinking, Immigration Act of 1924, 
I don't know, the census of 1890, that's kind of old data since the census yeah. is taken every 10 years. Well, the next slide shows the legislative history where they specifically debated between the census data from 1910 and 1890 and what maybe they did it every 20 years back then. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, the very important context here is that in the 1890s, so that would have been after the 1890 census was taken, around 600,000 Italians immigrated to the U.S. and over 2 million Jewish people from Eastern Europe entered mm. the U.S. between 1880 and 1920. So this choice of using the 1890 data was likely due to prejudice against Jews and Southern and Eastern Europeans because the white ideal, like at this time, those groups were not quote unquote white. The white ideal was Nordic. Uh-huh. Yeah. That prevent and then we see the language here too, like um we don't want to add quote numbers to their own stock. We don't want to add great numbers to their stock. And it's like all this language still that's reminiscent yeah. of like breeding. So speaking of Europe, we're getting kind of um closer to the end. I'm just going to talk a little bit about Europe and the influence abroad, because when many people hear the word eugenics, they think of Nazi Germany, but the U S like the U S legal history is an integral part of eugenic law in Germany. So slide, the next slide, the new slide 31 is the first section of the German law for the prevention of genetically diseased offspring. And it follows Lachlan's model law for sterilizations that he wrote for states to use, follows it pretty closely. And German legislators referred to U.S. law and to the eugenic organization called the Human Betterment Foundation to legitimize this like controversial law. Um, yeah, do you want to read like maybe the second paragraph under section one, just because it's like so straightforward? Sure. Um, it says anyone suffering from any of the following diseases is considered hereditarily diseased under this law. One, congenital mental deficiency. Two, schizophrenia. Three, manic depression. Four, hereditary epilepsy. Five, hereditary St. Vitus dance. I don't know. Never heard of that. Okay. Six, hereditary blindness. Damn. Seven, yeah. hereditary deafness. Eight, Serious hereditary physical deformity. Uh, yeah. Come on, um, man. Can you guess when the first genetic test for a disease came out? Oh, I isn't it like really, really recently, like the 70s or something? Yeah, 1983. This yeah. was 1933. This is like, the. I mean, you know, this isn't the only issue with this law, but it's not based on like... We don't know these things. We just didn't, like, no one actually yeah. knew. Like, the structure of DNA was discovered in 1953, etc. Anyways, um, so this is, this is nuts. And then the next slide is the, a doctor at the Human Betterment Foundation responding to the new German law, just praising it, saying, like, oh, um, you know, the details wouldn't, might not fit into our legal mode, but the medical work is great, the, is good, the patient's protected, like, uh, it's so great that they, 
that they quoted the foundation quote, the matter has given me a better opinion of Mr. Hitler than I had before. He may be too impulsive in some matters, but he is sound on the theory and practice of eugenic sterilization. Like fuck off. Some people thought that it was, that it was too far. Some eugenicists, especially in the UK, but like in the U S this, this back and forth was just like a, a just a horrible, um, <laughs> alliance. So this ties into what we said about the immigration restrictions. The next slide. Oh, is, is this, am I looking at Otto Frank's application for refugee status? Yes. Um, that's what I found on this website, but I, but then I read other stuff that like they weren't able like the the common knowledge is that like the Frank family was turned away from the U.S., but like more recent um, scholarship says that like they never were able to like submit the application because the bureaucracy was like too difficult. So mm. either way, though, I put it there just as an example of like there would be people responding to Germany's law by trying to leave Germany, but the. Immigration Act of 1924 capped German national entries at 26,000, which is a really small number. And um, hold on, what was I going to say about this? Oh, so then when citizenship was stripped from German Jews by Germany, immigration became a legal impossibility since there's no quota for stateless people. <laughs> like, yeah, it was just yeah. it's just a mess. Like, and of course, we didn't have refugee law at the time since it was developed in response to the Holocaust. So, not not the refugee law that we would recognize today. Mm -hmm. um, so the the act just like amplified this. Now, um, the legacy of the eugenics movement. Aside from that, I'll talk more about like current things. Um. I have in the new slide 35 a citation of Buck v. Bell in Roe v. Wade. And mm. also you'll notice that Jacobson v. Massachusetts, the, the compulsory vaccination case is also mentioned in Roe v. Wade. Buck v. Bell is still good law. It's still on the books. Not good meaning good, but like good meaning like it's still legitimate law. Has not been overturned. So um, that's wild that it's like still... <coughs> Good law and still that's being like used. Nearly a hundred years old. Well, that's how Starry Decisis works, baby. I know. Listen, yeah. you don't have to tell me about Starry Decisis. <laughs> so um the next slide is the governor of Oregon in 2002 um formally apologizing for Oregon's forced sterilization. I believe they were the last to um outlaw the or to overturn their sterilization laws so there's just so many survivors of forced sterilization that are still alive and part of our society and i think yeah so i think they outlined it in 19 outlawed it in 1983 which is That's just so recent horrifying yeah. yeah and so much was happening like in the 70s it's estimated that in the 1970s alone an estimated 25 to 40% of American Indian women and 10% of men were sterilized. Wow. And between the 1930s and 1970s, an estimated one third of women in Puerto Rico were sterilized. 
like this this sterilization happened like overwhelmingly disproportionately in minority communities despite buck v bell being like the a family of of poor white people it really like the effect was on racial minorities um and obviously disabled populations but it's estimated that around 80,000 people in the US were were forcibly sterilized but the exact number is unknowable since many were done without the person's knowledge of it even happening and they're they were logged like in medical logs as appendectomies. So we can look at kind of like wow at suspiciously high numbers of appendectomies and kind right. of but you don't know how many of those were actual appendectomies. So there's that. And then in the 2010s, they were repeatedly built into plea bargains for low-income criminal defendants, like voluntary quote unquote sterilizations. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. The most recent, so the last slide is the most recent news on this is a current, you'll see this was filed December 21st, 2020, class action lawsuit that alleges forced sterilization in an ICE detention facility in Georgia. Um, so this is just, it's still ongoing, even though the, the peak is past. And there's other legacies of eugenics that live on. Like we still use IQ tests in schools. Um, our culture still dehumanizes disabled people. It's still racist, obviously. And then new fertility technologies and CRISPR technology like opens up discussions about this way outside of the scope of this talk. But like this just it's not over. Um, that and yeah. like so this is I, I wish that I had more information to flush this out. But um, while you were while you were giving us this presentation, I was thinking about um this woman I used to work for, Eva, who is like a disability rights activist. And um, when I was working for her, there was a case, I think it was like when the right to die became oh, like, was yeah. like really making headlines. Um, and I remember like we were chatting about it and I was like, yeah, I'm all for it. Like everybody should, you know, be able to have the right to die in my opinion. Um and she is a person who like has pretty significant disabilities and relies on the help of, you know, her, her friends and her family and, and pay and paid people. And she was like very vehemently against the right to die. And that shocked me because she's super, uh, super liberal. Yeah. And she was yeah. like, people with disabilities, like will just be killed because they are in because people consider them to be inconvenient. And like, if you have, a significant physical disability, you know, there are a lot of legal mechanisms for your family members to like to be a conservator of you. And like, yeah, basically she was making the argument that it's a really slippery slope and there's a lot of shit that happens behind closed doors and privately. And like a wow. lot of folks with disabilities don't have that. the amount of agency that they should yeah. over their bodies and the decisions made about their bodies. And I was like, damn, I had so they, never. So the fear is that like someone will basically be killed. And then afterwards the, the person, like whoever was responsible for that will say like, no, they chose yes. to die. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I can also imagine that happening. I wish there was a way to make it so that those who, genuinely did want it could have it without there being that coercive thing but 
Isn't that always the trick with public policy things? Yeah. <laughs> always Shit. seems to be the trick. And I just, I guess I bring that up to kind of like further your point that this, it touches so much more than just like a couple different laws. Like there's bioethics baked in there. There's like, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Laws. Yeah, just... This was such a great presentation. Thank you for sharing it. Oh, Megan, it was so much better to be giving it to you on the podcast. I feel much better about it than my presentation yesterday in class where, you know, there's just like pin drop silence. I could only make eye contact with one person. So I oh, kept looking at them. <laughs> and then, like, <laughs> it was over so fast. I'm sure this was much longer than 14 minutes. So thank you everyone for your patience. <laughs> it was, but it was talk, so I just fun. told everyone like, that this was one long advertisement for the WashU Disability Law Caucus. So, hey, there you go. So if you're listening and you are at a law school without a disability law group, you know, get in contact and I can share our info and whatever. You know, it's still still like so many, um, so many things to do, so much to do still. So much work. The work doesn't yeah. stop. Yeah. Well. Um, I just want to wrap this episode up on a lighter note because I know that at the beginning of the episode, <laughs> I was in a very bad mood. But now that I've been chatting with you for almost two hours, I feel much, much better. <laughs> yes. You have made my day. Oh, it, I, you're still riding high. Um, I know it's not the eugenics presentation because that doesn't make sense. I know it's the survivor comment. It was survivor. It was survivor. <laughs> <laughs> Megan oh, wins God. immunity. Oh my gosh, you would find all the idols too. You'd be so good at it. Oh God, this is a good note to leave it on. All yes, right, folks, yes. I'm going to search for idols or to record my Survivor audition tape, one or the other. I'm going to trivia night where I will be not a value add, just eating foods off the tab. <laughs> Love it. Until next time. Yes. Bye everyone. Right. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Cool.